This is Sunrise, the who, what, when, where, why, and WTF of Florida politics. I'm Rick Flagg reporting from Tallahassee, where it's a jam-packed day in the House, and the Senate appears to be taking the day off. Florida's Emergency Operations Center is gearing up for the Super Bowl, just in case. A Senate committee approves a bill allowing inmates 65 and older to be released from prison early. They also want to speed up the release date of inmates with terminal illnesses so the state doesn't have to pay for their health care. Another Senate committee approves a bill to spare Visit Florida from the budget acts. The House and Senate always open their floor sessions with a prayer, but they don't always like what they hear. You'll find out why. Our guest today on the Sunrise Interview is Peter Schorsch, the founder of FloridaPolitics.com. He'll be talking about a new poll that shows Bloomberg making a move in the Sunshine State. We'll also have your calendar of political events and the continuing adventures of Florida Man. And now the top stories on Sunrise for Thursday, January 30th. Talk about a senior discount. A budget subcommittee in the Florida Senate has approved a bill filed by Senator Jeff Brandis that allows inmates to age out of the state prison system before completing their sentences. The bill provides that an inmate is eligible for consideration for release under this program when the inmate reaches 65 and has served at least 10 years of his or her term of imprisonment. Uh, As you tour prison facilities, as as many of us have, uh, it's kind of always shocking to go into wards and see very, very elderly people walking around on walkers with um, and, and usually with an assistant there to, to assist them. Uh, and so we think this is another op- opportunity for the state to provide some, some grace in, in some of these situations. Not every inmate will be eligible. Largely sex offenders, those with uh, other very serious crimes, will not be eligible. Um, they will serve the rest of their lives in the, in the prison system. So this just looks at inmates who have served at least 10 years, who are uh, at the age of 65, and who have... Um, have a very, very low likelihood of committing new crimes uh, in the future and and, uh, allows the department a mechanism by which to offer them an opportunity to uh, serve out the rest of their their lives under the the watchful eye of their families and, and with the department being there in the background. You can call it an act of grace or compassion by the state, but in truth, it's all about the money. Robert Weisert with Florida Tax Watch says it costs a lot more to take care of older inmates, and the state can save big bucks by sending them back to their families. Florida Tax Watch has researched extensively this issue and written about it for years and recommended this, the creation of this type of program as a potential cost savings for the taxpayers. National studies show that elderly prisoners are more expensive to incarcerate and have a reduced risk of recidivism. Also, health care costs for elderly prisoners, according to some estimates, are five to eight times higher than for younger prisoners. So we do see an opportunity for cost savings here. Senator Gail Harrell has her doubts. She's worried those older inmates will still be spry enough to return to their criminal ways. But in the end, she supported the bill. You know, I have to say I was a little reluctant at first because 65 is the new 55 and and people are are living longer and uh, much more active and the ability to do things has really increased over the years. I just want to make sure that those that we are releasing are not going to go back to their old ways or become uh, a risk to society. So I think, uh, I think, there are enough safeguards within this. The fact that there will be a detailed look at their past history, their history within the prison system, as well as the conditional release and conditions upon release uh, at this point seem adequate. I think it will have to monitor this program very carefully to make sure that we're not having a large uh, recidivism rate where people are re 
are re-entering the prison system. So to me, this is kind of a, a bit of a, a, a leap of faith to do this. Um, I think public safety is the number one responsibility of government. We want to make sure that we're not creating more problems and we're putting uh, the public at risk. The committee also approved a bill setting new guidelines for the early release of inmates who are permanently incapacitated or suffer from a terminal illness and only have a year left. Under the current system, it can take so long to get a medical release that the inmate dies in prison before the paperwork is done. A budget subcommittee in the Senate votes to postpone the death sentence for Visit Florida. The state's tourism marketing agency is scheduled to expire on July 1st, but Senator Ed Hooper's bill would give it eight more years of life. He says Visit Florida is an investment that pays off for the entire state. In 2017, out-of-state visitors added $85.9 billion to Florida's economy, more than the entire budget of Florida for that year. In 2018, 127 million visitors set the eighth consecutive record tourism to Florida uh, record in a row. All 67 counties in this state benefit because of the marketing drives that Visit Florida conducts annually. Every county is impacted. And probably the most important fact is that for every 81 visitors to this state, one job is created. And the visitors that come to our state on an annual basis has been shown to me that it saves the average of $1,512 to our citizens that would uh, impact state and local taxes. That's why I think it's important for the extension of this Visit Florida date. Visit Florida has support from the Florida Ports Council, the Florida Brewers Guild, Florida Tax Watch, the Florida Restaurant and Lodging Association, Associated Industries of Florida, the Florida Attractions Association, the Florida Association of Museums, and the American Advertising Federation. But the Florida chapter of Americans for Prosperity, which is part of the Koch Brothers Conservative Network, opposes the bill. AFP's Philip Suderman says the state has no business being involved in the private market. Americans for Prosperity remains committed to standing up for the taxpayers. As such, one of our priorities is decreasing and eliminating what we see as wasteful government spending, whether it be subsidies, tax credits, or regulatory favoritism towards an industry. We know that Senator Hooper's intentions are positive, and his desire to improve and strengthen Florida's economy are sincere. We applaud that desire, as our own organization holds the same goals. Unfortunately, we disagree that this is the best way to do it. We believe that the role of government is not to act as an ad agency, and it should focus itself instead on the core functions that society needs to operate, such as creating strong and safe communities and creating economic opportunity for all. These are the qualities that we can all agree on and are all actively striving to achieve. We believe prosperity comes when government removes itself and lets individuals create new and innovative products, which make all of our lives better. We have looked at Visit Florida. We don't think that the proper role of a state government should be to act as an ad agency. Visit Florida won the battle this time, but the House Speaker is still dead set against it. The Florida House of Representatives always begins its sessions with a prayer, but they may be having second thoughts after Wednesday's session. The ministers are asked to stay away from political issues, but Wednesday's prayer began with the words, O God of the oppressed, we have lost our way. Some, O oh God, feel it is acceptable to ask your presence here in this chamber, yet not okay to advocate for the folks that our laws sometimes marginalize. How is it, O oh God, now too political to advocate for the working class and for those living in poverty? 
folks who increasingly can't afford Florida? Why is it too political to pray for our teachers and state employees to be paid enough for food on their tables and roofs over their heads? Oh God, is it now too political to pray for your creation, calling for regulations to turn around climate change? Is clean water now too political? And why is it, oh God, too political to demand the dismantling of white supremacy and racism from a state whose laws support voter suppression, target the disproportionate incarceration of black and brown people and do harm to the undocumented? When, oh God, did it become too political for a woman to make her own medical decisions or for a child to want to attend school without guns? How, oh God, is it too political to pray for LGBTQ people who in the year 2020 simply desire protections for housing and jobs? Is it political to pray for the well-being of transgender children who are at the greatest risk of suicide, whose colors I wear around my neck today, who want to be called by their correct pronouns and be allowed medical treatment? Remind us, oh God, that you did not create the marginalized and oppressed political but all your children you created in your image and you called them good. We lost our way when we chose to politicize their very existence. If we're not affected by minimum wage or the threatened with deportation, if we can afford health care or if the color of our skin or the faith we practice or the person we love doesn't dictate how we are treated, then it's easy for us to politicize the lives of others. So forgive us, we pray. Embold us to speak out for the vulnerable, quiet us to listen to their voices, convict us to put your people before party, and liberate both the oppressed and the oppressor in your longing for beloved community. It's in your name we pray. Amen. When I contacted the public information officer for the House Speaker to get the minister's name and affiliation, Fred Piccolo replied with an email that said, preposterous prayer. No, don't have his name, nor do I care what it is. His name was the Reverend Andy Oliver of the United Methodist Church in St. Petersburg. The San Francisco 49ers and the Kansas City Chiefs aren't the only teams gearing up for the Super Bowl in Miami this weekend. Jared Moskowitz, who runs the Florida Division of Emergency Management, says emergency operations centers, commonly known as EOCs, will be staffing up for the big game in South Florida and in Tallahassee, just in case. Because this is an event, uh, it's called a, an event of significant importance, Homeland Security is actually in charge uh, of all of that. We are in a supporting role, not just myself, but FDLE and other, other state agencies. And so we will have uh, boots on the ground. The EOC is actually going to be open and operating. Uh, and so we are going to be ready to support uh, potentially anything uh, that may happen, uh, except uh, the only thing I hope that happens is one of those teams has a good game, and that's the end of that, and people go home in a nice orderly fashion. So. so is going to be open and operating. Can you elaborate on what that means? Sure. We have different levels uh, yeah. of operation. We're going to be at a level two, uh, so it requires a certain amount of staff and ESFs from other state agencies to be in the EOC ready in the event, you know, God forbid something happens. The Tallahassee EOC will be open and operating. The Miami-Dade EOC will be open and operating. The Broward EOC will be open and operating. And we'll also have some personnel on the ground at the stadium. The game kicks off at 6.30 Eastern Time Sunday night at Hard Rock Stadium in Miami Gardens. Next up, a chat with the boss. This is Sunrise from Florida Politics. If you live along the I-4 corridor, learn to use your business experience to impact public policy. Apply today to the Central Florida Political Leadership Institute at cflpli.org. 
the Orlando Economic Partnership offers this free nonpartisan program for business-minded leaders to explore whether elected or appointed office is right for them, discover political strategies to succeed and lead, and join a network of influencers. Apply by February 21st. Visit cflpli.org. That's cflpli.org. Welcome back to Sunrise. Our studio guest today is Peter Shores, the founder of FloridaPolitics.com, the creator of this podcast. Welcome back to Tallahassee, Peter. And tell us what brings you to our hive of scum and villainy today. It's certainly not the weather. <laughs> and it's certainly not the threat of flu, which uh, seems to be passed out at the airport here in Tallahassee. But it's, uh, you know, got to sell my wares, sell those ads that uh, keep us all going. And, you know, I like to do a bunch of the panels and check in with the lawmakers, see where we're at, you know, at the kind of the quarter post right now and see uh, how the horses are looking as they make their first turn. How do you think it's going so far? I think it's going um, pleasantly well. And I think people, especially today, as I'm ta- as we're taping this, I think the budget rollout has gone more pleasant than in years past. Um, and you feel, you, you hear it from the lawmakers and um, the lobbyists and the industry folks that I guess there's just not this like uh, sort of Damocles like hanging over them that there's going to be a two billion dollar cut to hospitals or something like that. P- some people are going to take it, some people are not. But people feel just talking to the appropriations folks, it seems like people are relatively happy when they have enough money. Things move rather smoothly around here. Yeah, I, I think the key day to this session is going to be that day they found out they had like another four hundred million because that just basically. You know, that just smoothed over all, the, all the pressure off. Yeah. Everyone's, there's a little money for everyone to get their little pet projects through. Exactly. Now, you also were talking about a Bloomberg poll that came out earlier. Yeah. Interesting uh, findings there. Yeah, it's interesting because, remember, we're doing session, but the, the presidential primary in Florida really begins on Saturday. That's when uh, overseas ballots get mailed for the first time. So all the military folks, all the people, and that's that's tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of ballots that will be going out on Saturday. So we wanted to take the temperature of the Democratic uh, primary in Florida, where we're at as we're heading into Iowa caucuses on Monday and Tuesday. We found some surprising results. Not surprising is that Joe Biden has got kind of a hammerlock on the state at about 41%. But what is, and I labeled it a shock poll, uh, Michael Bloomberg is at 17% in second place. That fast? Yes, that that shows you what... uh, a couple uh, million dollars in TV buys uh, will do for you, or tens of millions at this point. And he's ahead of Warren, ahead of Bernie Sanders. And the way, you know, it's important to keep in mind the way the the rules of the Democratic uh, caucusing and uh, delegates work, you have to get above 15%, especially in congressional districts, to even qualify. So if you get 14% statewide, there's no difference than getting zero. And so... Michael Bloomberg may force out Sanders and Warren from even competing in Florida. And then that makes it even more interesting for Biden and so forth. And so they're, the folks in uh, Bloomberg headquarters are going to look at this poll and say, hey, wait a second. Why don't we spend another 10 or $20 million in ads down in Florida? And that way we will at least have some delegates going into the DNC if we don't um, – you know, knock off Biden and win out the nomination. Was there any sign of a Bernie surge in Florida? No, Bernie and in Florida, Warren and Sanders are at, I think it's 9% and 8%. 
Uh, they are splitting the vote. I do think that of all the states, I think, you know, this is just not one of those, you know, we don't have a, a bunch of, I don't know, we don't have the same kind of liberal base, progressive base. I think that uh, the northern states do. I think our liberal base is more environmentally based. You know, like I think that that's the issue that progressives right, care right. about most, whereas Sanders is an economic socialist. And I, I, I don't know. I just don't feel like even – I just don't feel like he is setting the world on fire in Florida. Okay. So beyond the poll, beyond uh, your dealings up here today, what else is going on in Peter World? Uh, well, <laughs> <laughs> you know, we're uh, – I don't know. I'll, I'll take a second and just talk about – I'm just feeling it from Kobe Bryant. I mean, if you're asking a, if you're asking a, a, a not an apolitical question, you know, I'm hashtag girl dad. I've got a seven year old, and there's the video of the ESPN uh, sportscaster. It's got 35 million views now, and it's only a minute and a half long, and it talks about this sports this uh, this woman's interaction with Kobe Bryant, and it was only the only time they met, and what an impact that. It had on her, and it was – they talked about him being a girl dad. And so, I don't know. That one is uh, – there's just moments in, in that transcend politics, and I feel like we are in one. I will tell you, just walking around and talking to as many people as I as I try to do when I'm up here, it's what a lot of folks are talking about. You know, I, I, I was kind of lucky to hang out with a lot of the – uh, there was a, a a legislative black caucus meeting uh, happening last night, and so I was kind of circulating around there. And so I was talking uh, with Oscar Brandon, and I was talking with uh, Perry Thurston, Geraldine Thompson, and it's on it's on those folks' mind. It's a this is one of the black community's most iconic figures. It is sports, one of that their most iconic figures, and so I also think it ties into you know the whole. I think it ties into all the Trump, Obama issues of race that we are facing is how we react to somebody like Kobe Bryant. Do you just kind of laugh it off and like, oh, it's just another celebrity? Or do you realize that this was a a global person? And um, I don't know. It's beyond budgets and so forth. It's something that I, I've had a lot of people talking to us about. I got you. And as long as you mentioned sports, any Super Bowl plans? Um, well, we always have a nice Super Bowl party at our house. Uh, my wife um, uh, ordered Kansas City ribs and a lot of uh, San Francisco-oriented food. I think like she got, there's a company called Gold Belly that sends in like, you know, like whatever that city is known for, for their food. Um, I will make one prediction. I've been making it all over the place. It's probably as good as my Andrew Gillum is going to win by seven prediction. But I think Kansas City by like two touchdowns. I'm going to go out there. I mean, I, I really like Kansas City this weekend. How about you? I am a Denver fan. Oh, really? So I have tremendous respect for Kansas City. Yes. And, and I think KC will take this. I was a huge Elway fan. And so I, I remember, you know, Orange Crush. How many Super Bowls did we... Lost four until right. they finally won two, and we were always at, we would always score first. Do you remember that? Like, yep. except the I think the San the, Francisco game was especially annoying. Yes. It's like jump off to that ten point lead and then bam, lose right. fifty points down the. Ugh. Elway would always throw one long touchdown pass, and we we're like, "Well, this is going to be different than years past. We're we're going to finally do it." And so, um, gosh, I remember the drive. That was like the greatest moment of my young NFL. I still have a VHS tape I made of that game. While really? I was watching it, yeah. Ernest Biner fumbling. Yeah. Yes, that was the great. So, 
Well, cool. Thank you for having me on. Absolutely. Glad to talk with you about a little bit of everything. Thank you. Our guest today is Peter Shores with FloridaPolitics.com. Your calendar of events, well, let's just say it is a very busy day in the House of Representatives. The Judiciary Committee meets at 8, Higher Ed, Health and Human Services at 9, Commerce, Ethics and State Affairs Committees meet at 11.30, followed by a floor session of the entire House at 3. Now, over in the State Senate, there's nothing. Nada. And they have nothing scheduled on Friday. As Mel Brooks once said, it's good to be the king. The State University System's Board of Governors meets at 11 in the FSU Conference Center. That meeting includes an update on the search for a new president of the University of Central Florida. The Florida Supreme Court will release its weekly opinions. That's coming up at 11. The Florida Supreme Court will also hold a ceremony at 3.30 to honor attorneys from across the state for their volunteer work on behalf of low-income and disadvantaged clients. The Florida Department of Transportation will hold an open house about a proposed toll road from Polk County to Collier County at 5.30 in Arcadia. FDOT will also hold an open house at 5.30 in Crystal River, where they'll talk about extending Florida's turnpike from Wildwood to connect with the Suncoast Parkway. And it's time once again for another exciting episode in our continuing coverage of Florida Man and his better half. A Florida woman loses her job at a daycare center for writing a note on the belly of an 18-month-old baby, informing the child's mother she was out of diapers. The big black letters covered most of the toddler's torso. The teacher was fired, and the director of the Children's Education Center on Sanibel Island apologized to the mom. 23-year-old Heather Chisholm was furious and said she would be pulling both of her kids from the center, but she's apparently having second thoughts after discovering there is no other available child care for a toddler her son's age. A spokeswoman for the Florida Department of Children and Families says the agency is looking into the incidents. That's it for today's episode of Sunrise. I'm Rick Flagg in Tallahassee, inviting you to join us again tomorrow as we plumb the depths of Florida politics.